We're in Mark chapter 2, if you'd like to open up there, Mark chapter 2. If you want to look in your own copy of God's Word, I will put the passages on the screen for you as well. Looks like the kids are heading out to their ministries this morning. Mark chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. There's also a note sheet that's provided for you in the bulletin if that would be helpful to you if you are a note taker. But Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, let's just begin this morning by reading the text together. Our author, Mark, writes of Jesus that he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of our God. Well, remember that Capernaum, as we have talked about before, is on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. If you look closely, you can maybe spot it in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And so maybe for very practical reasons, Jesus leaves the house in the city where he had been ministering at, and he heads for the water. Now, my wife might want to use this as a proof text that God loves beaches. <laughs> and she may be right. Genesis chapter 1, God created the land, separated the sea, created the land, and said it was good. So maybe that is true. But for a practical reason, for a very practical reason, would be that preaching on the shore would have allowed so many more people to gather around Christ and to hear his words than the house in Capernaum, the busy streets. And so he heads for the shore. He heads for the beach. Verse 13, Mark tells us that all the crowd was coming to him. Remember, we've talked about this, but Jesus is now experiencing enormous popularity. He's famous, especially in Capernaum. Jesus' mania has swept Galilee. Everybody has the T-shirt, been there, done that. He's the most popular person in the area and especially in this city. People simply cannot get enough of Christ. On his way, he has an encounter. He's moving, he's going to the beach where he's going to preach and, and teach more, leaving the city, and he meets someone along the way. And this encounter would have most likely shocked his followers even more than the encounter we looked at in chapter 1 with the leper. I think there was probably never a dull moment when you're hanging out with Jesus Christ as the boys found out over and over again. 
And so if we go back and we look at that first verse in our text this morning, we see that Mark records, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. So this is the first time that Mark introduces us to Levi. But is it the first time that Levi encounters Jesus? Well, we don't really know. Probably not. Again, Jesus has been quite famous for some time in Capernaum. And, and this is now where he lives. He's making his home here. Whether the house where the roof was destroyed in, in our last time together, whether that belonged to Simon Peter or it belonged to Christ, we know that Jesus has pretty much moved to Capernaum. So it's very possible, it's very possible that Jesus has passed by Levi's station many times. It's very possible that Levi has heard Jesus teach before. Levi perhaps has witnessed a miracle. Perhaps he witnessed a, a healing, or perhaps he witnessed Christ casting out a demonic spirit from someone. And this could have had a, an enormous impact on him. Mark, our author, with his usual brevity, offers us no more detail. Thanks, Mark. Who was Levi? We can figure out some stuff from what we know of biblical history, from the other Gospels, and so we're going to piece some things together here this morning throughout the message. But Levi would have been a tax collector, and judging by where he's at in Capernaum, he would have been a tax collector in the service of Herod Antipas. It's probably more accurate for us to visualize Levi's station as a tax collector as more of a tax booth than a tax office, in that his job most likely was that he would collect customs on goods that were in transit. So his job most likely was, for instance, if someone had a catch of fish in the Sea of Galilee and they were bringing it home to Capernaum, he would collect the tax that was due on that. Levi, being a tax collector, though, would have been a very hated man. And here's really the important part of his being introduced into the gospel and his part of the story. Dr. R.C. Sproul offers us quite a bit of historical background here when he says the Jewish people were subjected to oppressive taxes by the Roman Empire. The tax collectors were Jews, don't miss that, who placed bids for the available jobs by submitting estimates of how much tax revenue they could collect. If the government, the Roman Empire, liked a person's bid, he would be selected as a tax collector and given a quota. Once the tax collector met his quota, everything else he collected was his. That's really important for us to understand when we talk about how the other people in the city of Capernaum, the other Jews, felt about Levi. Tax collectors grew wealthy from what they could collect over and above the taxes owed. So, put it another way, the more successful that you were at exploiting your own people, the more money you made. 
you grew financially off of exploiting the people around you. So knowing that, it's very hard for us to exaggerate how much he would have been hated by his own people. No fuzzy warm feelings here coming from the other Jewish people in Capernaum toward Levi. They would have seen him as a traitor and a thief. And this is nothing new. This is not something that starts with Christ and the New Testament times, the gospel times that we're talking about. This goes back into ancient Judaism as long as Israel has been an occupied territory, which, of course, goes back hundreds of years. And so the Mishnah and the Talmud, these are ancient Jewish writings, they put tax collectors on the same level as thieves and murderers. Thieves, murderers, tax collectors. Oh, what's your son going to do with his life? He's going to be a tax collector. Right? Not something you would have been proud of as a Jewish parent. Tax collectors were expelled from the synagogue. If a tax collector walked into your home, your home was automatically unclean just from his presence being there. Tax collectors sound as bad as lepers. No, they were actually worse. No one chose to be a leper. People chose to be tax collectors. For the sake of getting wealthy, people chose this occupation where they would exploit their friends, family members, and neighbors. No wonder that if your child did become a tax collector, they were expelled from your home and family. They were hated. Leprosy made you unclean, but becoming a tax collector was to willfully sin. You didn't have any control if you contracted leprosy, but you chose to be a tax collector. This was a whole other level of hatred. What's up with Jesus? What's he doing? He has already in his ministry broken the law by touching a leper, and now he calls a tax collector to follow him, and we're only in chapter 2. Jesus really needed to hire someone to do HR for him. However, he had no problem recruiting the people he wanted. He walks up to Levi, and he says two words, follow me. So how did this man who had sold out his community, his friends, his family, had traded in, the traditional religious Jewish lifestyle to be the most hated man in his community. How does he respond when this preacher from Galilee, from a little town, nothing town of Nazareth, calls out to him and says, follow me? What does he do? Well, the end of verse 14 tells us clearly, Mark records for us that he rose up and followed him. You see, unlike the rich young man who will one day after this, later in Christ's ministry, choose wealth over Jesus and choose his wealth over the truth that Jesus offers him, Levi chooses the truth standing right in front of him and leaves the world and all of its riches behind. 
It, it kind of reminds me of what Jim Elliott, how many of you know that name? Oh, church, let's read more missions biographies, will we? We're missing out on so much of our history and heritage. Jim Elliott, the American missionary who was martyred in 1956 on a beach in Ecuador with other young men who had given their lives to the propagation of the gospel to an unknown people group, a people group where they didn't know the language and they had never been introduced to the gospel. And these young men and their wives went down there and said, we are going, if necessary, to sell out our lives so that they might know the truth. And he goes down to Ecuador, and in 1956, he and his buddies are slaughtered on the beach by this group of people that they were trying to reach. But this is what Jim Elliott wrote when he was a student at Wheaton College years before that. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Amen? So what happens after Levi follows Jesus? What happens? Well, that evening, the disciples of Jesus found themselves somewhere that I am sure they never thought they would be. These poor, good Jewish boys, they had tried to be so good throughout their life, and they had followed the scriptures. They had followed the teachings of the Pharisees. Because mind you, and I'll say this periodically so that we don't consistently villainize the Pharisees, but the Pharisees were the good religious people of the day, and they were trying to live up to the law. It was very important to them. They were trying to be righteous, and that's noble, so much so that they had created a fence around the word of God to protect it. Well, let's not even cross over the fence because if we do, we might violate the scriptures. Their motivation was normal, was, was good, it was positive, but these disciples, right, these were good Jewish boys and they now find themselves somewhere that they never thought they would be in the home of a tax collector. And, and you could just picture Peter and Andrew and James and John looking at each other like, are we supposed to be here? Is this good? What are we doing here? Did we pick the right guy? What's going on? <laughs> and they were probably nervous and anxious the whole time. But here they are in this tax collector's house, and, and then other tax collectors show up, and, and people that were known in their city. Remember, this is where Peter and Andrew, James and John were from, and people who were known sinners start showing up in this home. And they must have been thinking, what are we doing here? And they begin to eat together. Look at verse 15 with me. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. All right, I need to unpack a little bit of that for you because there's so much that's important. In that verse. First of all, the phrase recline at table indicates sharing a meal together. So they're eating together. Why would this have been such a big deal to the disciples? Sharing a meal with someone in this culture has so much more significance than it does for us. This was a sign of acceptance. Dr. Uh, ben Witherington says it very well and helps us to understand this. He says, as was true Normally, in the ancient Near East, 
to have a fellowship meal with people, to recline at table with them, implied that you accepted them in your company. So this was a big deal. It was a big deal to the disciples. Now, who are the sinners that are mentioned in this verse? The Bible's clear here that all people, as we know well in our theology church, all people are born into sin, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and all people commit sins. But this in the gospel seems to be kind of a special classification. This seems to be referencing people who have chosen blatantly sinful lives. Otherwise, Mark would have just said another people showed up. But that's not what he says. Tax collectors and sinners. There's a reason he uses that designation. Don't miss this, church. Mark tells us that many tax collectors and sinners, in this verse in 15, he says, many tax collectors and sinners were now among Jesus' followers. Jesus accepted in their culture by eating a meal with them, reclining at the table with them. He accepted these big sinners. Well, there were some who noticed this gathering <laughs> that night and were very disturbed and perplexed. And that's what we find next in verse 16. If there were theme music going on, it would now change into a minor key as the villains enter the room. No, not villains. We're not going to villainize them. They're just not woke yet, as the kids would say. <laughs> Verse 16, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So who are these guys who are trying to ruin the party? What's up with these party crashers anyways? They are, as I just said, the most religious people in Israel and in Capernaum, the city that we're in, in our story. The word Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word that means separated one. That's what the word Pharisee actually means, to be separate or separated one. And these were pious Jews. Let me just say this again so it's clear in everybody's mind. Pious Jews who devoutly followed the Torah. What's the Torah? The law of Moses. As well as the tradition of the elders. What's the tradition of the elders? That is all of the commentary and all of the thinking that grew up surrounding. Remember when I talked about the fence? That grew up surrounding the Torah. What did the rabbis teach about this verse from Genesis? What did Rabbi so-and-so back from uh, the days before the exile, what did he say about this verse in Leviticus? And this is, was the oral tradition that they had accepted. They called it the tradition of the elders. These were extra-biblical traditions that expanded on Old Testament law. And their intent was to apply the Torah, God's Word, to every situation in life in order to be sure 
that it would not be violated in any way. If we nail it down and we can tell people exactly what to do and exactly what not to do in each and every situation that they might encounter in life, then we'll keep them from sinning. That was the thinking. Now, again, before we villainize them too quickly, again, I want to say this. Their goal was noble. Their goal was noble. It was to live a pure life, and that's great. That's wonderful. It's God-honoring. The desire to live purely before God. We could certainly go to many Old Testament passages that I'm sure the Pharisees used as their proof texts. Their goal was to be obedient to God in every possible way. And again, to build that fence around the law of God. But the problem, and we're going to see this over and over again. I'm going to say it right now for the first time, but you'll hear me say it many times as we work through Mark's gospel. The problem with the Pharisees is that they consistently choose their truth over God's truth. When push comes to shove, they choose their tradition over what the Word of God actually says. And so now they see Jesus eating with this motley crew, accepting them, then they can't understand what would motivate Jesus to eat with such sinful people. Doesn't he know that he's accepting them? Doesn't he understand what this means? How does Jesus respond to their question? Let's look at verse 17 together. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And and Jesus here quotes a common ancient saying. I want to make sure you understand what he's doing here. He's not just thinking off the top of his head, right? But he actually quotes something that the Pharisees would have recognized. This was a common ancient saying that the Pharisees in the room would have accepted as being true. When he says to them, those who are well don't need a doctor, but only if you're sick, he's quoting something that they would have said in a situation. And I don't think we should miss this, because I think that Christ is modeling something here for us as we relate to people in the world. As we interact with people who have not yet trusted in Christ, Jesus is modeling something here for us. We need to start where people are and help them to see the truth from their vantage point. Because, church, if the truth is the truth, it can defend itself. Amen? And so we need to start where someone is in life and just help them to see the truth. Even self-righteous religious people deserve Christ. And that's, that's what Jesus is doing here. I, I think this is love. That's why I have no desire to villainize these Pharisees, because even though, and we'll see this, even though at times Christ is going, the, the most angry Jesus is going to get is going to be at this group of people. But yet there are times where in love he's trying to reason with them. So you know God's word. You know your own tradition. Your own tradition, God's word, should lead you to me. And I think that's what he's doing here. But I don't believe in any shape or form that Jesus is 
in any way calling the Pharisees who are criticizing his behavior here. I don't believe he's calling them righteous. He's not saying to them, well, you guys are good, right? That's how you could interpret this verse, that Jesus is saying, well, you're, you're in no need of a doctor, right? I didn't come for you. You guys are good. You're going to get in. You get a free pass. You're good enough. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is not saying that the Pharisees are well and of no need of a physician. Sadly, these Pharisees did not see their own desperate need. They couldn't see it. And that's what Christ is saying here. They didn't understand how sick with sin they actually were. This is the truth that they needed to see, but they were blind to it. I believe that Jesus is saying here that until someone realizes that they are sick, they can't possibly understand how much they need a physician. That's the point of his statement here. Dr. William Lane says this as well. Dr. Lane writes, Jesus had not come to call for the kingdom of God men like the scribes who considered themselves to be righteous, but outcasts who knew they needed to be made whole. Jesus is saying here, until you feel the weight of your sin, until you feel the weight of your sin, you do not know you need a Savior. Until you know that you're lost, you don't know that you need to be found. That's what Christ is saying here. And once you're found, abundant life can begin. Well, it's a good time for us to circle back to Levi. I asked that question before, who was Levi? And I told you who he was before Christ. Who was Levi? He was a tax collector. That's part of his story. He was a great sinner. Levi, he was a great sinner. He was a tax collector. He was called by Jesus, and he followed after Jesus. That's a very important part of Levi's story. But I think it's important for us to realize who this man most likely is and who he becomes, because most Bible scholars, I actually couldn't find one that disagreed with this, and I looked at several, most Bible scholars agree that this is Matthew. That's a name we're even more familiar with in New Testament and church history, that Levi is actually Matthew. He becomes one of Jesus' 12 disciples at this point. He's a future apostle, and he's the author of one of the four Gospels. Not the one that we're studying, but we'll reference him from time to time. Why did Levi follow Jesus? Why did Jesus call Levi? Dr. Daniel Aiken speaks to that and writes, Jesus saw something, Levi saw something in Jesus that he wanted to join. And Jesus saw in Levi what he could become. Jesus saw a sinner in need of salvation not a low life deserving condemnation. Jesus saw not the wicked life of a tax collector and extortionist, but the changed life of a disciple, an evangelist, an apostle, and a gospel writer. That's the scandal of grace. Jesus sees in us what no one else can see and turns us into what we were intended to be, mature image bearers who reflect his glory. All this is made possible by scandalous grace and his choice to be a friend of sinners. Amen? Amen. Dr. Aiken here is driving at what I think is the main point of this passage. 
You could tell I think it's the main point because I put it in big, bold letters. I think this is the point. I think this is what Mark wants us to hear from these just few verses that we studied this morning. God loves to take people who know they are broken. They know that they are sick and in need of a physician. They know that they are sinners and in need of a Savior. God loves to take these broken people and to transform them into something beautiful for his glory. God loves to do this work in our lives, church. So, in closing, this is probably a good time for us to consider who are we most like in the story. Not the last time I'm going to say that as we work through the gospel. Because when we study the parables of Jesus Christ, that's the question we should always be asking. Because Jesus didn't tell stories just for the sake of telling stories. Jesus told stories to make a point. And the question that we should always ask is, who am I the most like in the story? So an obvious one, the parable uh, that Jesus tells of the father who had two prodigal sons. One leaves him by going away and living a sinful life. The other one leaves him at home, stays home, does everything quote-unquote right, but his heart is far from the father. And when Jesus tells that story, he wants you to connect with somebody in the story. And it's not the younger son he wants you to connect with. It's not the older son he wants you to connect with. He wants you to have the love of the Father. And so here, as we begin to study these sayings and we hear Jesus teach and we see him interact with people, we want to begin to ask these questions. Who are we most like? Well, we only have a few options, so this will be quick. First of all, are we like the Pharisees? And this is something for each of us to ask individually. Am I like a Pharisee in this story? Separatist, self-righteous, judgmental, going around, ruining parties. <laughs> oh, you're having fun? Got to ruin that. <laughs> Pharisees believed in Strict separation from anything and everything that they thought might defile them. They stayed as far away from it as possible. Objects, food, people. They despised sinful people. They avoided sinful people at all costs. Well, sadly, church, there are Christians who think like Pharisees, that they should avoid contact with unbelievers and with sinners. I've met pastors who do everything they can do to avoid sinners. They work hard at creating a culture within their church that keeps congreg congregation members separate from the world as well. What does the Word of God say? Be in the world, but not of the world. Church, this reveals a heart that is unchanged by the gospel. Pharisees don't think with a gospel mindset. Because if the gospel has transformed you, please listen, if, if your neighbor right now is nodding off or sleeping, throw an elbow. Wives, it's Mother's Day. You can get away with it. Throw an elbow at your husbands. If the gospel 
has transformed you, then you know that you are no more deserving of salvation than a murderer on death row. You don't deserve it any more than the person who has committed the most vile crimes you can imagine. And I thought about going into even more detail to drill this point home, but I think we might still have some kids in the room, and so I'm going to leave it at that. But you don't deserve salvation any more than that guy sitting on death row whose life is about to be taken by our government. You don't. You don't deserve it any more than he does. And, and to feel contempt in your heart for anyone because of their sin is to deny the gospel that is saving you. Do you understand that, church? If I look at someone else's sin and see it as somehow worse than the sin that corrupts my heart and fills my mind every day that I struggle against, and I look at someone else's sin and I say, yeah, 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 but I'm not like that guy, then I don't get the gospel. I don't get it because it's, I'm thinking too little of my own sin. Sin that was so great that it caused Jesus Christ to go to the cross on my behalf. My sin, my sin put him there. Church, none of us deserve this. Not a single one of us. None of us are deserving. All of us deserve hell. And, and if you don't see that, I am not sure what gospel you have trusted in. But it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so maybe that's your takeaway from this morning, just that. And if that's it, then that's wonderful. Trust in the real gospel today, the real gospel that says that all of our sin is enough to send Christ to the cross and that for me to look at my sin as somehow being less than someone else's sin? No. There's no difference. There's no difference between me and the killer on death row. Our sin is the same in God's eyes. Brothers and sisters, we are all sick and in need of a physician. We are all sinful and in need of a Savior. This is what makes the gospel such a scandal and at the same time makes it so beautiful. It's this. Let me, let me say it to you so clearly. We deserve hell and God gives us heaven. That's what makes our gospel that we've trusted in him so scandalous and yet so beautiful. We deserve hell, and God gives us heaven. We deserve death, and God gives us abundant and eternal life. Amen? We deserve Satan, and God gave us Jesus. It's a scandal, and it's beautiful. We deserve prison, and God throws us a party. And so here he is, Jesus hanging out with these tax collectors and sinners having a party. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It is this realization that allows us to be like the tax collectors and sinners at the party with Jesus. 
You see, they were so much closer to the kingdom of God than the Pharisees were. Why? Because they were at the party with the king. And so they're so much closer. They are so much closer to getting it, to understanding it, to moving in the direction they need to move in. You know, later in this ministry, Jesus is going to tell a story that's going to clearly make the point and illustrate this essential truth of the gospel. You guys know this story well, but Luke records, another gospel author, Luke, records it for us. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, when a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterous, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What does Christ say? What's the outcome that day? I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Are we like the Pharisees? Are we like the tax collectors and the sinners? Church, we're not supposed to be like either. We're supposed to be like Jesus. We're supposed to be like Jesus, the friend of sinners, not the Pharisees, not the tax collectors, but Jesus. Let's strive to be like him. Jesus didn't believe in separation. He believed in transformation. Jesus didn't believe in separating himself out from a sinful world. He dove into that sinful world head first in order to transform people. Amen? That's who we are to be like. He didn't avoid them. He befriended them. He ate at their homes. He shared in their suffering. He spoke truth to them. He didn't ruin the party like the tax collectors. He made the party. Dr. Mark Strauss writes about this in closing. I'll leave you with this quote and ask the worship team to join me. Dr. Mark Strauss writes, Believers must not build walls of separation from the world. Rather, they are to carry the message of grace and transformation into the world. Doctors do no good for the sick if they hide in clinics behind locked doors. Would you bow your head, please? Close your eyes. Worship team, come on up and help me. What does this look like? As they come and they get in place, what does this look like? <laughs> I'm trying to be kind of funny and tongue-in-cheek here, but maybe it looks like this. Let's stop ruining parties. <laughs> Let's stop ruining parties in the world. Let's join parties. And so let's go into the world. Let's engage culture. Let, let's bring Jesus with us and join the party. It, it's really pretty simple. To reach the lost, we have to do two things. 
We have to do two things if we're going to have the heart of Christ that we've seen here in our passage this morning. First of all, we have to join the party. We have to be in relationship with people who are still lost in their sins. And then second of all, we have to bring Jesus with us. We have to bring him to the party. We have to be intentional about introducing people to Jesus. I don't think it's any more complicated than that. But both of these are absolutely necessary. Both of these are absolutely necessary. We have to form friendships with lost people, and then we have to share the gospel with them. Let me end with this to try to paint a picture for you of why this is so important, why Jesus made this the great commission of the church. This meal that Jesus shares with the tax collectors and the sinners in Mark chapter 2 this morning foreshadows a party that one day will happen in heaven. You see, brothers and sisters, after all the invitations have been sent and all of the guests have arrived and all of us great sinners, we undeserving reprobates and ragamuffins who are invited to the party due to absolutely no merit of our own, we will celebrate together the great salvation provided for us when we responded to the call of Jesus Christ. When he came up to our tax booth, our station, and he said to us, follow me. That's why we're at the party. That's why we will be at that great celebration with Christ in heaven, because very simply, he called us and invited us to be there. It's not because of any goodness of our own. It's not because of any righteousness in ourselves, but it's all because of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us in the cross. Amen, church? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast.